Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels, this feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, alright, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian, no, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, and, uh. I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim, and in addition to Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams, my friend Caleb Frizz will be joining us again this week. After spending a considerable amount of time in the Alexandrian East of the 2nd century, we will move into the early 3rd century with the figure of Tertullian of Carthage, who was born around 155 and died around 240 AD. Of the authors studied so far, more of the writings of Tertullian exist than any other. We will be looking at his works for the near future, including for our live broadcast, when we will read his Against Praxeus, where he argues for the Trinity, the first time this word appears in its fullness and with the good explanation. Check out our Facebook page for a link to the text, if you would like to read it beforehand. Tertullian was raised in a traditional pagan Roman household before converting to Christianity later in life. While he did not found the Christian community in Carthage, he is the first major author whose works still survive from this North African city. Writing in Latin, he writes like a Roman lawyer with a biting tongue and a more earthbound focus than the Alexandrian East. Unlike Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian creates a barrier between the pagan past and Christian present, arguing Quote, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? End quote. He was writing in a time of persecution of Christians, but it was not as widespread as it will be in 50 years' time in that very area. But it was not especially safe for Christians. We will be reading his apology this week, and that is why my atheist friend Caleb will be on this show, speaking for the other side of the debate. Please enjoy our conversation and check out our Facebook page for more information on our coming live show next weekend. Thanks for listening. So we're going to hop into Tertullian's um, apologetic here, uh, apology here, I should say. Um, And so I will try to give a little introduction, but Caleb's been on before, um, and we're bringing Caleb on as our resident atheist. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And so um, he's going to give us a little, you know, a little bit of a different perspective in the conversation. All four of us actually have beards and studied philosophy, so that's appropriate, uh, <laughs> speaking of how we look. Uh, but we do have uh, some different perspectives on, on how philosophy works. And Tertullian is going to be one of our first writers who will give voice uh, to a rejection um, of philosophy. Um, and, and so he's, he does not want to see any continuum uh, with, with the ancient philosophers um, like Clement, who we've been studying Turning to Tertullian. Yes. Um, so the first, the first question that I pose, so in the, in the classical world, especially in Rome, uh, the, the, the best example of this comes from Cicero, but religion, religio, is, comes from the word for bond. Um, and so religion was what bonded the state, um, the community of people who lived in Rome to their gods. Um, and all of this was one and the same. Um, so they would go and sacrifice, uh, uh, keep the eternal flame going, the Vestal Virgins. Um, they would, you know, they would sacrifice to uh, Jupiter. They would do all of these things in order to preserve the Roman Republic. Um, and, uh, and so basically it was looked upon as incumbent for everybody in that community um, to care for and honor uh, and worship uh, the Roman gods so that the society would function well. And the, the view was if you appeased the gods, you would satisfy their anger and then the gods would not do harm uh, to Rome. Um, and so Tertullian is in this context in North Africa where there have begun to be persecutions. Now, it is not widespread persecutions. It is actually not even an injunction of the government as a blanket policy for another 50 years. Um, but there are persecutions of Christians. And Tertullian is taking up this notion uh, that 
Christians are somehow causing more harm on Rome because they're not worshiping the Roman gods. So I wanted to see how, you know, how do we see Tertullian's engagement with Roman religio, Roman religion, um, and his view of, of this new sort of religion, this new sort of way of following after God um, that, uh, that Tertullian's a part of in this great church, this Catholic church, this, this uh, community that's following Jesus. Well, I think it took about 15 or 1600 years, but eventually this idea did take hold in a new kind of government, which was uh, the founding of the United States, where we explicitly said at the beginning, this is not going to be a religious government. We're not going to have religious tests. You can have any kind of religion that you want. Um, And I think that our founding fathers were heavily influenced by this Christian tradition understanding the persecution when you have a state religion, looking at the history of Europe, um, and they explicitly rejected that. So it took a while for these ideas that Tertullian is expressing here to take hold, um, because originally when Christians did take over, so to speak, um, it was more reactionary and more of the same. They outlawed all other religions except for Christianity. Uh, But I think that you can see Tertullian's ideas here of we shouldn't be persecuting Um, one religious group um, because they don't support our society um, in the founding of America, which then spread throughout the world, France, etc. Well, I think he also argued that they were helping the empire. Um, The part I can remember is him talking about how they they pray for the emperor and they Mm. pray for their officials. And they said, they said, you basically, he was kind of acting more like obviously his position was just objectively true, but uh, which, but essentially at the end of the day, it's kind of like, look at in my religion, I'm doing the best thing ever for the empire. Like it, according to my religion, I'm helping the empire more than you're helping the empire is kind of how he felt. So let me worship how I want to worship and who I want to worship. So yeah. And it was very, he's, he's definitely a lawyer. Tertullian. Yeah. He's well, def- he literally is. Yeah, he literally, he literally is. Literally, yeah, and it came, it came through because he was just sharp about it, I thought. But. Well, you know, I, two things, actually. One, just kind of predicate on the fact that you said lawyer. I think it's kind of funny. This was something I was thinking coming in today. Um, I think Chad, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the reasons, you know, we've had Caleb on during the two times we read the, the, the works called Apology, I think. So... <laughs> I think Christian understanding is typically that an apology is a defense of the faith. And so part of the idea was, hey, two great episodes to have Caleb on would be ones in which we read a defense of the faith, see how he responds. But when you read Tertullian, he is defending the faith sort of, but just barely in the sense we think of it. He's doing it in a traditional, the way really that they thought of an apology, which is a court defense. He's doing it in the sense of we're on trial here as Christians in this government with the with the emperor as, as judge, and this is why it's wrong to condemn us, which really it doesn't have the same. It, it's just a different kind of thing from what modern Christians think of as apologetics or giving an apology uh, for their faith. He he isn't so much he he isn't so much trying to argue that it's true, although he does try to give some arguments as much as that he's trying to defend the practices of the faithful and. Uh, and to attack, honestly, as Trevor mentioned just a second ago, the practices of, of those in power. And you made the comment, Trevor, that we actually are doing better for the kingdom than you guys are, which, I mean, he's very definitely very pretentious in that. I mean, he, he, is, he is certainly kind of – he is definitely speaking down to them and their practices. But he makes this comment, the comment that, that Trevor just referenced in Chapter 30 uh, – in chapter 30 says, we offer prayer for the safety of our princes to the eternal, the true, the living God. The idea being, we are actually the most effective in gaining favor for the Roman Empire because all of you guys who are offering sacrifices, you guys are offering sacrifices to the false, not living God. And so you keep doing this, but the reality is you should be thanking us because we are the ones who are actually talking to the real God, who's the only one who could really benefit uh, the kingdom. Um, which, 
you know, it's kind of an interesting tack. The one thing I would like to point out about it is that in all of this, Tertullian, he very much identifies himself as like a Roman also. Like, I'm a Roman, and I should be treated like a Roman citizen, and I should be extended the same the same um, rights that all Roman citizens are. And if I'm going to be put on trial, it sh- I should be treated the same way Rome, that any Roman citizen would be. And he says, but that isn't what's happening to Christians. And, you know, Chad, your comment, I, I, I don't know. To be honest, I think our biggest source about the persecutions from this time is Tertullian. So it's hard for me to speak to how fair he's being in that representation under the Emperor Septimius Severus. I don't know. Severus is often considered a kind of persecuting emperor, but it's hard to say by how much. I mean, Tertullian says that Mark holds up Marcus Aurelius as a great example of an emperor who didn't persecute, but Justin Martyr wrote his apology to Marcus Aurelius saying, please don't persecute us, implying that Aurelius was actually persecuting them. So it's hard to say, you know, on that on that front. Right. And to speak to Tom's earlier point, uh, he does kind of, Tertullian does kind of go on the offensive. And I thought it was interesting the way that he chose to do it, or one of the multiple ways he chose to do it, was basically what I see as like a proto-atheism. So um, in chapter 10, he says, we do not worship your gods because we know that there are no such beings. (laughs) This, therefore, is what you should do you should call on us to demonstrate their non-existence, um, which is, of course, a naive early atheist mistake. Um, you don't want to try and demonstrate the non-existence of God because you can't do it. <laughs> um, you can't demonstrate the non-existence of Zeus or Yahweh or God. Uh, it, it's just logically impossible. Um, and then he follows up with that uh, in chapter... 12 with kind of a um, very early, but I think pretty decent start at trying to explain what he thinks religion actually is, giving like a theory of religion, if I can find that in my notes here. Chapter 12, basically he's saying that um, uh, what, what are you really worshiping when you worship your gods? What are you really sacrificing to? And he says that it's, um, it's dead men and uh, old stories. So here's the quote. Um, I'm going to show what your gods are not by showing what they are. In reference then to, the, to these, the gods, I see only names of dead men of ancient times. I hear fabulous stories. I recognize sacred rites founded on mere myths. As to the actual images, regard them as simply pieces of matter akin to the vessels and utensils in common use among us. So this is a more sophisticated uh, atheist, atheistic argument uh, than we've seen so far, way more so than what Justin said, where he's just like, oh, you're gods. They're just pieces of metal. So he's actually saying, you know, uh, it's not complete by any means. Um, but, you know, these are stories. These are dead people. These are special rights in addition to the physical representations of these stories. Um, and so, like I said, he I think he fails in his attempt to demonstrate the non-existence of the Roman gods, but I think it's interesting that he even tries. And I can see Tertullian in um, my um, tradition of atheism just as strongly as he is in the Christian tradition. Well, that's probably why early Christians were, or partly why early Christians were considered atheists. I mean, that is one of the, or that is one of the, the reasons I would think that pagans did bring that charge because it is a definite move um, away from those particular, uh, you know, from, from those beings. I, I would add something he says, and by the way, Caleb, I agree with you. He does make that attempt to disprove the Roman gods and he does fail. In fact, he takes a, a really odd approach in certain ways by trying to say that all Roman gods are reducible to some human who lived in the past, which is odd for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the God that we worship is definitely an, a human of much more recent history. So that right there was kind of an odd approach, but also because I have no idea where he could have gotten that. I mean, he, he quoted a couple of authors who I have to admit, I've not read their works in entirety, but I've read portions And I've certainly 
had professors like talk a lot about them and you know listen about them. Podcast. I've never heard anybody make the claim that Saturn was once a human. I mean, I don't know exactly what Tertullian was referencing there, but what I find interesting, uh, this is in chapter eleven. He goes, um, he, he talks about how the gods are associated with various things like Bacchus is associated with the vine and he reduces it to that Bacchus was a real human who was the discoverer of the vine, whatever that would mean. Um, Cause I can't imagine being the first person to discover a vine. Uh, but be that as it may, he, he goes on, he says this um, as wherefore, if the universe existed from the beginning, meaning if the universe was eternal thoroughly furnished with its system, working under certain laws for the performance of its function, an eternal universe with certain natural laws that determine the function of the universe. There is in this respect an entire absence of all reason for electing humanity to divinity. For the positions and the powers which you have assigned to your deities have been from the beginning precisely what they would have been, although you had never deified them. So what he's saying is, if the world had just always existed, there was no God at all, and if there were in, instead only natural laws, which, of course, defined what was going to happen, then that could be true, and you, in your statement of your divinities, has added nothing to that. Because your divinities, and this is, this is where I'm interpreting here, your divinities didn't create anything, they didn't invent anything, they didn't begin anything, they're just associated with these various things. They're causally and, inert. Exactly. Yeah. Take them out. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And what he's saying is we're actually making a much bolder claim with our God because we're saying, and this is uh, connected to when he says, when he quotes, or when he states that our God creates the universe ex nihilo, which means actually, out of nothing. It's yeah, actually de nihilo in the Latin. What's that? It's actually de nihilo in the Latin on that part. Really? Yeah. Mm. What's, now, what's eventually, the... though, people would use the phrase ex nihilo in Latin. So I, I just assume because I'm reading it in what, English. But... What's the difference uh, between day and X? It's nothing. I don't I mean, know it, it means the same thing. It means effectively the same thing. It's, it's just um... – yeah, just a, just a point of emphasis. I was looking at the Latin uh, at various points throughout. So yeah, yeah, uh, day and X both can be translated from. So, so Tom, I find it really interesting that you just went to chapter eleven because I just pulled up chapter eleven, and I was going to use it. I had a opposite interpretation of of this passage. I don't take it that Tertullian is arguing that the universe uh, was created by God. Um, I take it actually that he's saying that the universe has been around for a while and it would be foolish to think otherwise, and therefore your your gods, the Roman gods, don't make sense. Um, so a, a little bit before what you just read, he says, men will make fools of themselves if they refuse to believe that from the very first rain poured down from the sky and stars gleamed and light shone and thunders roared and Jove himself dreaded the lightnings you put in his hands that in like manner before Bacchus and Ceres and Minerva, nay, before the first man, whoever that was, every kind of fruit burst forth plentifully from the bosom of the earth, for nothing provided for the support and sustenance of man could be introduced after his entrance onto the stage of being. So I was going to bring this up to say that this is like an anti-young earth creationist argument that Tertullian is making. He can't allow himself to even think uh, in a young earth creationist mode where God created the world the same time that he created humans, the same week rather, um, and humans have always been here. He's saying, of course, the world has been around for a long time before humans came on the scene. Well, yeah, well, you know, and, sorry. I mean, but, I'll just go ahead and speak to that. I mean, you know, the, the whole uh, debate over the age of the earth um, I mean, he has other sort of weird datings um, about uh, how old uh, the Jewish thought is that we can get into. But the, uh, you know, the creationist debates that take place in the modern period, uh, you know, in the last 200 years are fairly unique to the history of Christianity. Um, I mean, there's going to be 
you know, we're going to look at origin. We won't actually read Nachmanides who, and um, Ibn Ezra, some of the um, more medieval Jewish writers, but none of them seem to have believed in, in, in an early creation, um, you know, sort of the six-day literalism that we get into. Um, that, to me, is a function of scientific uh, enlightenment theories. And so it's sort of, I mean, to me, that's trying to put Christianity in modern enlightenment dress. Um, and I don't think that that's a particular concern of Tertullian. It hasn't actually been a concern of the church, as far as I can tell, um, <laughs> until the last 200 years. I mean, the, even the whole concept of a literal atom is a relative innovation. Um, and, you know, you know, that's not how Origen read it. Um, those that we have, uh, early thinkers that we have who comment on it, you know, they, the, the idea of literalness, literalness was the, le- the lowest of the interpretation. The highest is the spiritual, even for Augustine's reading typologically in a lot of these things. Um, so, I mean, you know, that, that is, you know, that is a part of Christian piety now for some, um, but it's a relative innovation. Right. Well, I, so I, I, it's neither here nor there for me, whether or not Tertullian believed in a young earth or an old earth. I, I didn't notice anything like that. I, I'd like to come back and ask you which, like, which part of what you just read, because it was kind of lengthy and I wasn't reading along, uh, kind of gave you that implication. I don't care either way if he did argue for an old earth. I would say one thing, we have to realize that the notion of young and old is something that is somewhat relative. I mean, in his day, if he had no notion of a distinction between young earth versus old earth, it's not as if he believing in a, a world that is 10,000 years would have been young to him, right? I mean, there wouldn't have been this notion. I don't think, I've never read anybody in antiquity that spoke of actually the dating of the universe. I mean, I don't recall anybody saying it's billions or whatever. I, I think they all just think of it as old. I mean, you don't have a, a so so to speak, dating of the universe based on the Bible until Usher, which is, he's a medieval, uh, he's a medieval guy. So, uh, there's none of that. I mean, I, I don't remember him speaking about the seven days. The only thing I was speaking to was there in that one little passage, he brings up a modal statement, if blank, then such and such would have been, meaning if the universe had been eternal, then these gods would have been nothing because they didn't create. And then he does speak in chapter 17. Uh, he says, the object of our worship is the one God. He who by his commanding word, his arranging wisdom, his mighty power, brought forth from nothing this entire mass of our world with all of its arrays of elements, bodies, spirits for the glory of his majesty. So I think that's the contrast. He's saying your gods didn't create anything, which is true, by the way. I mean, uh, Greek mythology, I mean, I'm sure it differs depending on the mythology, but Greek mythology takes the universe as a brute fact. It always existed. Um, The gods are after the universe. And so he's essentially saying they're not necessary. But our God, he created from nothing. There was once nothing else, in the, nothing here, and then he brings this into existence, kind of just highlighting the difference between our God and their God. Um, yeah, so to uh, just one little minor, maybe minor point. Um, he's, he goes on a fairly vitriolic attack on their beliefs, um, and he's clearly using um, rhetoric of the day. Uh, I'm not quite sure if we're into the second sophistic yet, um, but the way that rhetoric was done, nevertheless, I mean, he, he in chapter 37, he says, if, as we said above, we are bidden love our enemies, whom have we to hate? Um, if, a man, if when a man injures us, uh, we are forbidden to retaliate, uh, that the action may not make us alike, um, whom then can we injure? But the the point there's two fold, there's two points in that that I thought were interesting. One of them is Christians are not allowed to retaliate um, in Tertullian's view, but the other one is the na- notion of love. And one thing that's difficult for me and a lot of Christians who we're going to be reading guys for a long time who don't speak kindly to their interlocutors, um, to the people that they're having conversation with, they're mean, <laughs> um, yeah. and it wouldn't it wouldn't fly um, in the United States. Um, do we fault them for that? Like, do can we look at Tertullian? He says, I'm, I'm supposed to love my enemies, but then he's going to go on and say they're fools uh, for what they believe. Is what that, you, is he, should we fault him for that? What I was going to say is, what do you mean by wouldn't fly in the United States? We're mean. We're really mean. Well, no, well, I mean, though, because <laughs> like we're reading the, who would be considered the academics oh, gotcha. of their yeah. day. Yep. We now at least, in my just undergraduate studies 
which I, I just meant to say that as like, even just in the undergraduate studies, because I know this is something that probably gets emphasized more in graduate studies, but a principle of charity is so necessary. And you're often told like you, like for example, if someone's wrong and you notice, at least I was encouraged or trained to go when someone's wrong I mean, basically don't be a jerk is, is the simplest way to put it. But also, um, which which I always thought was cool because I'm like, I'm practicing speaking the truth and love right here as, as encouraged <laughs> by the Bible. No, but like, but yeah, you, there is a principle of charity now in our academic world. But I think, I think you're pointing out something, Chad, which, which I've even heard even in our modern world, like debates that go on in uh, different countries. I can think right now of like, parliamentary debates kind of how it just is a different style you do need to be more raucous or i don't i'm trying to think of a way you know i mean it does come across as mean to us but at the same time there might be a bit of a like a uh, i don't know maybe if we took the temperature of the of the day maybe they, they they both everyone was writing this way to each other maybe this was just yeah, I mean, maybe this was just a solid way rhetoric was done to them, and perhaps, perhaps they didn't even think of it as that mean. I'm not really sure, but but we definitely are way more charitable to our opponents today. We go, oh, you know, interesting. Well, given that, I think this, and we, you know, we talk in a more political way. And even when you see, even when I've seen people like disagree uh, outright, um, I could think of. Peter Milliken and William Lane Craig one time when they're more when they get into their informal discussion, even when they're being informal and kind of just kind of just going at each other's ideas. It's still not like watching Bill Maher, for example, who just yeah. <laughs> literally just, you're an idiot, you know, just, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, choose a conservative Christian on the other side of that. I didn't mean to Trump. just bash on Bill Maher, but oh, the point there are plenty. Of yeah, exactly. <laughs> pick, pick someone from either side, but point, the point being is, yeah, we definitely in academics do not do this to each other. We don't just belittle uh, ideas mm-hmm. um, because, well, because I think maybe it's just because we put more of a premium on reasoning now. I don't know. It, on reasoning alone, that is mm-hmm. in, in the academic sense, whereas maybe to them that emotional, uh, thing was well it was a big part of the rhetoric and maybe the rhetoric was a bigger deal to them i'm not yeah. that's my idea yeah. about it but we can consider that part of the conversation close i wanted to bring up a passage that i thought would be um problematic for modern day christians so in our last podcast we all talked about demons and i don't think that there was anyone here who was a demonologist or that particularly committed to uh believing in them And Tertullian, again, makes the point that um, demons um, are translating, uh, you know, ancient Hebrew philosophy to the Greeks and Romans to give them their um, culture. And he's very specific and really oddly authoritative in his description of what a demon is. And I just wanted to read this passage because it struck me as so um, strange. I mean, there's a modern equivalent in the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, but it's explicitly written as a work of fiction. <clears throat> Whereas Tertullian is throwing this in here along with his other authoritative uh, things that he's claiming are true. So the passage is in chapter 22, um, and he says, What is daintier food to the spirit of evil than turning men's minds away from the true God by the illusions of a false divination? And here I explain how these illusions are managed. This is the part that gets crazy. Every spirit is possessed of wings. This is a common property of both angels and demons. So they are everywhere in a single moment. Now they're traveling at light speed, okay? <laughs> the whole world is at one is as one place to them. All that is done over the whole extent of it. It is as easy for them to know as to report. Their swiftness of motion is taken for divinity because their nature is unknown. And... I I just wanted to throw that out there to to cast a little bit of uh doubt on Tertullian. Uh maybe he's an unreliable narrator. Um he believes a few crazy things. I also wanted to throw out there he's got this really awful quote. He was kind of a 
hardcore uh, misogynist and sexist. Um, and I think the worst example of this is this quote. He says that women are like a temple that's built upon a sewer, um, referring to like female body parts. Um, so I just want to say maybe we shouldn't um, trust everything Tertullian says. Well, let me make a couple of comments. First, I do believe in demons, just to make that clear. I mean, I very, very plainly believe in them. So does C.S. Lewis. He, he, says, he says that several times. Um, I wouldn't consider myself a demonologist. I don't know that I know what a demonologist is, maybe somebody who studies demons. I certainly think that is kind of a crazy description, and I think it's funny, and those certainly do not convey things that I believe about demons. Um, but I would say... I don't think that either of those things in my mind, I mean, I don't know exactly what you're looking for in a reliable narrator per se, but I mean, if you go back to antiquity, they're all that. I mean, so we have no reliable and narrator, reliable narrators in antiquity. I mean, Aristotle said a woman was an incomplete man. Uh, Aristotle said that a woman was less than a slave, which was lower than a human uh, play, you know, uh, um, you know, you have Agathon who was an old Greek playwright. He said that a woman uh, that true love could only be between a man and a man because a woman has nothing to offer a man. Um, and they all believed in, if not demons in the Christian sense, they all believed in, not all, I mean, it, but you are hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't believe in something about the supernatural in antiquity. So I think the fact that I disagree with somebody's worldview or that I don't, I don't have the same notion of their cosmology or, their, uh, or something along those lines, I don't feel like that makes them an unreliable narrator, especially if I know where they're coming from, why they believe what they believe, and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, when I think of a reliable narrator, my only real concern when I think of reliability is, is he accurately conveying the experiences that he's having in this time? Uh, that's kind of what I'm looking for. So it, when he talks about persecute, so the only question I have about in this reliable narration is his descriptions of persecutions in North Africa, is that reliable? Uh, to which... I don't think the fact that he believes in demons or the fact that he's a misogynist should make that um, should cast doubt on those things. I don't see why that would. Well, is is Caleb more just saying like uh, maybe not venerate him? Is is that more what you're saying, Caleb? Just don't venerate him because of these moral. But even then, failings? you couldn't venerate Aristotle either. Or, which I case, mean, same kind of thing, I mean, or Plato, or well, I guess Plato. I take it, I take it that the the typical. Uh, perhaps stereotypical Christian mindset to relating to a text is based off of um, biblical training. So it, uh, at least modern biblical training. So it's taking text literally, trusting the author. Um, and it's, it's a little bit more uh, academic, the approach that everyone here has been trained in, where, of course, we're not going to treat this person as reliable. We're going to subject them to like, uh, you know, a historical critique um, and all I'm saying is that here's a Christian author who's um, writing before the Bible was officially put together, who's taken as an authority and someone um, who helped put that work together. And he's saying some demonstrably uh, crazy or just unreliable or kind of weird things that I don't think any modern Christian would agree with. So I don't, ex I, I, yes, I do treat Aristotle and Plato that same way, but that's, that's normal. What I, I don't take it that a, a, the average Christian um, has that as their baseline um, uh, heuristic for analyzing a text. Which, you know, actually, Caleb, I, I've thought about this with, um, see, because I, I think Protestants in particular, we feel, if anything, encouraged to question early church followers. Like, we don't, we have no, like, dog in the fight, whether, because we don't think they're authoritative in the same way we would think, for example, the Bible's authoritative. Um, so Pro Protestants in general can be really critical, but I've always actually kind of wondered this about, about some of these figures, because, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to act like I know the texts well enough to say these guys are just wicked people, but I, at the very least, there is a bit. I, I think there's some moral failings, and I think it's a bit weird that the you know Catholic Church would call them saints. And I know I, I'm probably now we're going to get hate mail from Catholics. I don't mean to be anti-Catholic or something, but I just 
I have thought it was maybe a bigger issue for someone who does think, and maybe some you guys should hear, correct me if I'm wrong, about the theology of Catholic Church, but I mean, because these guys are uh, considered fathers, I'm assuming that, well, maybe I'm just assuming this because they're on the Catholic Encyclopedia, and because they're saints, I was thinking that they were like kind of within the apostolic succession. Just you know, Tertullian's not a saint, though. Oh, he wouldn't be considered mm-hmm. a saint. Okay. Yeah, so I haven't addressed his Montanism, um, but we'll get into that. Yeah, I mean, the Catholic Church would view them as part of the conversation, not in the same authority as Scripture, but definitely more important to consider um, than for the Protestants. I, I don't want to go down that trail too much. For one just, thing, yeah. yeah. But they got, but basically they kind of just uh, they preserve some truths essentially. Yeah. So they so the Catholic could reasonably say like, well, of course we don't just think everything Tertullian said's right. I mean, the, the idea is he he's preserving core truths though and protecting the church. Yeah, right? but Tertullian is a hard one because he's a Montanist, which was declared a heresy. Oh. Yeah, he's, he's not. Yeah, he's he just doesn't fit in that period. So oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, he's still considered important, and this is before he became a Montanist. So, so this is, but even then it is fundamentally a misunderstanding of Catholic doctrine to think that everything that was written necessarily is, I think, inspired. I don't think that, I don't think they need to be committed to that. And if they certainly aren't committed to that, it's all inerrant. Um, But Uh one thing I would say, and this is why I brought up Plato and Aristotle Caleb is because from, I think a Christian standpoint, I don't think this is different at all. I think I look at, I look at Tertullian as exactly, actually, I look at Tertullian almost exactly as I look at Plato and Aristotle. Um, I I look at him as somebody, the only difference being that he's speaking to theological concepts that they wouldn't speak to. I read him to come across his arguments. And so one, I want to see his arguments. Those that I like, for instance, that I read it, I discard it. I don't even think anything about it for the same reason that when I read Aristotle, I read a good argument. I consider it when I think about, you know, I think about his, his definition of virtue quite a bit. But when I read what he says about women, I just discard it. I just, I mean, by that, I don't mean give them a pass. I don't mean to say that I think that they're okay guys or something at all. I just mean, I know that I think that's false. I think it's crazy. And I move on. I I think that we always have to do that when we're looking at people from another culture, another time, like we have to sit there and try to contextualize them in their, you know, in their context. And I think I think that modern evangelical Christians, I think that they're a little better readers maybe than might have been implied with what you're saying. I mean, one, you know, people, I hear people often say that they always interpret the Bible literally. And you acknowledge that like we're more maybe educated than a lot. That's true. But that's true with in the case of everybody. I mean, all over the world, you have about the same percentage of people who are fairly well educated and well, not all over the world, but in the U.S., let's say, and the same percentage of people are uneducated. And we tend to be a little better if we're educated at at approaching ideas and assessing them than people who aren't. But I think your typical Protestant who reads the Bible, I don't think he is committed to a true literalism. I mean, I've never met a Christian who said, or a Protestant who said that Jesus was a door to a gate or was the gate to a sheepfold because Jesus says, I'm the gate to the sheepfold. They know that there is figures of, that there are figures of speech and so forth. The real issue is what do we consider to be figurative, what do we consider to be li- uh, literal, and then that's where the debate kind of kind of flows out. But they certainly no no church person, no Protestant that I know would read Tertullian and say this guy needs to be right. They just wouldn't say that. They would look and they go, oh wow, this is really interesting. Wow, he believed crazy things. I can't believe that they believed that back then. And then they go, oh, but this is really cool. And that's I think how they would read him if they took the time. I mean, didn't our first episode feature a guy who thought phoenixes existed? Yeah, the first episode had a guy who believed in phoenixes, the birds. (laughs) So real quick, the woman who sits on the sewer, that's the Pythia. That's from Delphi. That was what he was talking about there. Um, So he was was talking about the oracular utterances of the oracle at Delphi. So I don't think that that's his view of all women. Actually, part of his Montanism is that women are prophetic. Yeah, that's um, right. He allows women priests, and he actually allows. So that is a little ironic. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the reasons he's excommunicated. He allows yeah. women priests and women prophets. That's right. So, I forgot I mean, about that. He may still have misogynistic tendencies in other ways. The but the woman over the sewer because that they, they used to talk about the gases that would come up from below the crack in the earth where the Pythia would sit on her tripod and she would be embodied by Apollo. 
Um, and, and then she would have her oracular utterances, which actually Montanism looks very similar to, um, which is part of why the church condemned it. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're not, yeah, we're not gonna deal with that part. So I just wanted to clarify Tertullian on that. Um, but that's just the most extreme of several examples yeah. of his misogyny. Um, and so just to clarify my intention in bringing this up, this kind of absurdity is that it would kind of plant a seed of doubt and that that would, in some people's minds at least, be extended to the interpretation of the Bible. I feel like if you can take this kind of um, academic, um, non-authoritative stance toward the Bible itself, then the game is basically over. Um, And the very first episode, referencing it again, um, everyone here, besides me, um, talked about how basically... They treated the Bible as authoritative, and I really object to that. So that that's my way of saying um, I don't think we should treat the Bible as authoritative. Here's someone who um, was writing around the same time as the Bible was being put together. Here's some crazy ideas he had. Maybe we should treat the Bible with a little bit bigger grain of salt, not just taking explicitly metaphorical passages as metaphors, but maybe even the story of Jesus itself or the story of the virgin birth um, or, you know, uh, the treatment of uh, gay people in a historical context. Um, th- that's more of what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, that's fair enough. I mean, the moment, I mean, I would add one thing there. You said treat it academic and not authoritative. Uh, you know, I, I think a person can believe it's authoritative and still approach it academically. People do do that. I mean, you have people who, like N.T. Wright, who we frequently bring up here, he thinks the New Testament is authoritative. He is an academic. He does write academically, and he approaches it. Um, I don't think he's being uh, at all. I don't, I don't think he's at all being, um, uh, you know, insincere or anything, but he approaches as if he's a part of a conversation with academics, and he writes as through argumentation. So he's arguing with them on the basis of what they assume, their assumptions. And I think that's fair. So I don't think those need to be mutually exclusive. But if you do approach the Bible as non-authoritative, then you're approaching it not as a Christian. So we do have this kind you know what I mean? Like we have this, this thing that's a little difficult. I think a Christian can come in, if he's already a Christian, he thinks of it as authoritative, he can question it. I think that's a different thing. And maybe that will lead him to think that it's not authoritative. But if you come in and you say it's just, I'm going to say it's not authoritative, then that's fundamentally a non-Christian view. And the war has already been won, kind of, you know what I mean? Because it, this is kind of a, 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 I think, a chicken or egg kind of thing. Once you believe the Bible's not authoritative, well, that pretty much is being not a Christian. So he, once you do one, the other one falls in line. So I think ri- rather maybe to encourage Christians to, when they read it, read what people who think it's not authoritative say and weigh out their arguments and maybe consider or, you know, question. I think maybe I'd say it that way. Yeah. Well, authoritative is pretty open too, because there's, well, there's definitely different views of authority. I just, for sure. But, but as far as I know, every Christian thinks it's authoritative Yeah, in some sense. But but all I meant by that was, yeah, there are people who think it's authoritative, but are very critical of it. Oh, sure. And so, I mean, they, I, yeah, I know people who, who definitely do kind of salad bar with the Bible pick different parts and not other parts and mm-hmm. think some things happened in history and others didn't. And well, C.S. Lewis thought it was authoritative, but he didn't think it was inerrant, right? Yeah. So yeah. he thought that it know. aired, for instance, C.S. Lewis did. Right. He also believed that, that the story of Jonah was a metaphor, Job was a metaphor, or I should, shouldn't say metaphor, allegory of sorts or a parable of sorts, but he would have said the story of Jesus was literal. So. Yeah. You know, I don't think the academic approach is necessarily uh, means that you can't also believe it's authoritative. That's not what I was trying to imply. Obviously, this podcast proved this, proves that that isn't true. <laughs> Thank you. Three academics here who all are taking an academic approach, reading things, you know, non-literally, critically with like modern uh, scholarly ideas and still coming to the end result that, yes, this is true. This happened. I believe in it. Um, what I'm saying is that um, people find it a lot harder to think that way. And there's a lot of, at least the way I was raised, I'll just speak from my own experience, was basically a naive um, 
uh, literalistic interpretation of the Bible. And, you know, there's this stereotype of people uh, who are the most hardcore Christians. They go to seminary and then they lose their faith. Right. I think there's a there's a reason for that. So I'm not necessarily saying that if you're an academic and you take an academic approach to reading the Bible, you'll necessarily lose your faith. I'm just saying it's a lot more likely um, and it starts to, to at least... Uh, uh, bring in some doubt. Chad talked a couple episodes ago about how he's comfortable with doubt, living in doubt. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people are not comfortable with. So I'd like to, uh, in my, you know, spooky atheist way, <laughs> bring in some, some doubt um, to the discussion. I'd like well, to add to that stereotype, though. A lot of them become pastors. And actually, I would bet that percentage-wise, a lot more become pastors than walk away being skeptics or in ministry in some sense. Nonetheless, I only say that, or I say that, but your point is well taken. I, mean, I think you're, I think you're properly characterizing what people experience when they grow up. I mean, that there is a an uncritical uh, approach to scripture that people tend to take, and I think that sometimes as they grow up, they're almost uh, they're pressured into taking that uncritical approach. And when the fetters come off and they start reading it for themselves, there is a big turning away from it. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I do think, and I think what I think Trevor made the point earlier that Protestantism, you know, has as at its core tradition, this idea that we should, indeed we must read it for ourselves and try to uh, make sense of it. And I think that I, I'm perfectly for that. I mean, I, I want people to read it. I want people to know the arguments out there. I want them to be aware of what people are saying and why, and to rest, to grapple with it. And, and I do think faith is something that, as you point out with Chad, is something where you are rife. You experience doubt. You feel it. I do. Right. Well, and so just as a defense of why we're reading Tertullian, um, I will grant that um, I'm going to approach Tertullian differently than I approach the biblical text. Nevertheless, um, just because I am the way that I am, part of my being sort of critical is like, I want to know, you know, the Nicene Creed is 325. Tertullian's the first one who's using the word Trinity in the sense that we mean it. He's 200 years after Christ. He's, you know, 100 years after the last book of scripture probably was written. We don't know. Um, so, you know, you have this development. Um, you have this um, I mean, I don't know if I want to call it innovation, but maybe, yeah, you know, there's, there's a movement somewhere. Um, and I think it's all latent in the text, which is to say it's all embedded there somewhere, but it has to be extrapolated. So how is it extrapolated? So there's a sense in which Tertullian is more important to me or uh, Tertullian or Clement or then later Athanasius, these guys. There's a sense in which they're more important to me um, than Aeschylus um, uh, than Sophocles, um, because they contribute to the tradition that I still see myself in. Um, and you know, and this, this idea of critique and being critical is, is interesting because there's a modern notion of critical and there, I don't think that that means that like Clement or Tertullian was uncritical, but how we view it with an enlightenment scientific mindset, we have developed our own tradition. Um, and some of the Christians have bought into that wholesale. Um, and that's where you, I think that's where you actually get the kind of modern fundamentalism that ble believes in six day creation. They have this weird world where they're like, I'm kind of scientific, but not really. And so you buy into some of the assumptions um, and then you try to mash the biblical text into this really like scientific world. And then you just get people who are, you know, like their heads are breaking uh, because it doesn't fit scientific inquiry um, and they don't know what to do. Um, and so, like I said, I think that there is um, for, for Tertullian, clearly he's critiquing Rome um, and, and he's going to give, you know, he, he does lead in a sense to America's, you know, mindset on faith and uh, uh, religion in the state. His view, the reason that he thinks that um, that it works with this plurality is because in the end, so his eschatological views, his apocalypse, you know, the end times, his view of the end is what shapes his view of now. So God doesn't punish us now. God punishes us in the end um, and or or justifies us. I mean, not only punishment um, and or God makes things right in the end. And so that's how he shifts um, his, the view of religion. 
two things real quick. One, yeah, it was unfair of me to say, I mean, I love Plato and Aristotle. I read them voracious. I mean, philosophers, Hegel. I mean, I guess that's post-Christian, but um, I, I love reading philosophers. So, But it was nonetheless unfair of me to say that I read Tertullian like I read Plato or Aristotle. I don't think Tertullian's authoritative in a scriptural sense at all, but I do read him differently like you do. You're right. That that was unfair. The second thing is I have five minutes before okay. my kind of final cutoff, and I know – Caleb said he had a couple of things he wanted to read and share, but there was right, definitely so more I wanted to talk through 45, about. We're talking about this naive uh, Christianity. I think this is a just absolutely astounding example of that. So right, right at the top, we then alone are without crime. Skipping the next sentence, he says, taught of God himself what goodness is, we have both a perfect knowledge of it that is goodness as revealed to us by a perfect master skipping ahead again he says but your ideas the roman ideas of virtue you have got from mere human opinion on human authority to its obligation rests hence your system of practical morality is deficient both in the fullness and authority authority requisite to produce a life of real virtue so um the this is kind of an extremely naive view where we have a perfect, Tertullian is saying, I, as a Christian, have a perfect knowledge of what goodness is. We've just agreed that uh, there's a lot in Tertullian that's imperfect. And so I think it's, it's just incumbent upon all of us to say, if you feel this way, and we all do, it's natural, human, it's not just a Christian thing, it's just a human thing to feel like we, we've got it right. Um, so just take a step back. Here's a guy who kind of looks uh, a bit ridiculous from a modern standpoint, um, although I don't think any of us would look great in 2,000 years. Um, and he's saying, I have a perfect knowledge of what goodness is, and your ideas are crazy because you don't have the right authority. So in perfe- so perfecte novimus eam. Uh, so we know it, um, it. One way that you could write it is in its perfection we know it. Um, so it maybe not know it perfectly, but eh, I don't know. Yeah. So that's a direct directimus. Yeah. No, novimus as we know. Um, so th- does that mean the same in Latin though as it does today? We've actually been having this debate on the podcast. No, I think it means completeness, not without error. Like we know what its intention is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's as in we know its end. So te- so the Greek word telos is the same. Uh, so perficere is to bring it to completion. So we know where it, it where it ends. We know where knowledge goes um, in its finality. So um, it's like exhaustive. We have yeah. an exhaustive knowledge of everything mm, that's good. Not an exhaustive knowledge. An, a knowledge. So like if you think about if if the world has um, if everything has a purpose, we know its purpose. Um, so we know its telos. It's it's like what it's for. Its final end. Yeah. And so it's like uh, it, we we know we know what a table is for because we know that we're supposed to set things on it. Um, we know what the law is um, because we know that it's to uh, taught us to love God and love neighbor. Um, it's kind of the thing. That's its purpose. Not perfectly, as in we know how to act rightly every single moment of the day. And I definitely think that passage is probably reactionary to the fact that I mean, obviously, a big chunk of this apology was we're you guys keep saying that we do all these wicked things, which this has been a theme in all the apologies. We don't do these wicked things. Actually, you do these wicked things. In fact, even some of your gods do these wicked things that we're being now committed to crime. And then I think he's also just kind of maybe talking about the fact that um, people got their uh, moral leanings of the day from philosophers of the day. So maybe he's just saying like the mere opinions of men, as he's like, well, you know, you read the Stoics or you read whoever, and and so then, but we we have an objective basis for morality. I think is kind of the idea there, but it still it still rests on div- being believing in the divine um, giving of the scriptures. So I mean, that might still look ridiculous, but that's what's grounding. I mean, it, it's not though. Yeah. However, that he is perfect where he is, for sure. But he does say he has a complete knowledge of virtue, which even in our discussion of like the, the refugee crisis, I don't think anyone was saying I have a complete knowledge of 
of what should be done in this situation? I would say that I, the difference that I would make there is like, I believe that um, whatever I do, it should be to the end that I love God and neighbor. Um, so it's perfect in that I know that what a human is called to do to live fully, to live well, is to love God and neighbor. Now, what does that look like in particular? I think that's where I would agree on incompleteness um, in my knowledge. But in terms of, yeah, like I have an end goal. Whatever I do, I want it to be directed towards love of God and neighbor. Yeah, it was also kind of, I thought when he was saying what he was saying, it did remind me of interacting with uh, ancient philosophers as well. It was kind of like, because um, not no philosopher did ever claim to have complete knowledge of virtue, but like that was kind of your end goal or whatever. And Tertullian, ironically, since he doesn't like philosophy, said a lot of stuff that made me think that, yeah, you're not too far off from kind of acting like Christianity is the true philosophy because that's a theme we've hit now uh, several times where basically like, oh, look, we've fulfilled this thing that Plato said a philosopher can fulfill. And anyway, maybe I'm just being a philosophy nerd about it. But I, I did read it in that kind of lens, like he's trying to interact with those philosophers and go, you guys write about this. Well, let's give Tom one more word, then you can go, and I'll let Caleb get the last word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know, really, my only thought, kind of last thing to come to my head or come into my mind is just thinking about Tertullian in the context of who we've been talking about. Clement, um, Clement looked at the philosophers as like gods. I mean, they were, and Christianity in his mind was the perfect fruition of. Uh, just where philosophy, the evolution of philosophy. So Clement looked at Plato and Aristotle as being almost in our tradition. That's almost the way he thought of them. Yeah. Whereas Tertullian, and he hasn't quite, I mean, quite as, uh, I mean, he, he comes out and he, he totally reacts against it. The opposite, the opposite take philosophy is bad. Of course, ironically, while doing it, he is doing a lot of philosophy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think you can really engage in, a discussion like this without doing philosophy to some degree, but that that's more for, I think another podcast, but that just kind of piggybacking off of what Trevor said there. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sad that you have to go. Cause I feel like I like Tertullian have saved the best for last. Uh, so in chapter 49, he ha- he has this really kind of strange argument that reminded me kind of like a, a, a primitive version of Pascal's wager where he says, and this is quoting here, but let things which are the defense of virtue, if you will, have no foundation and give them duly the name of fantasies, yet still they are necessary. Let them be absurd, if you will, yet they are of use. They make all who believe them better men and women under the fear of never-ending punishment and the hope of never-ending bliss. It is not then wise to brand as false nor to regard as absurd things the truth of which it is expedient to presume. So uh, the reason I say it's a, it's not quite Pascal's wager because he's not saying um, uh, you should believe it because whether or not, if it, because if it's true, you're going to heaven. What he's saying is that you should believe it, not because it's true, but because it's, it's useful for society. Um, and I, I just thought that was a really weird thing for someone who just spent 48 <laughs> books defending the truth of this to say, it's like, well, we, you haven't let a single ray of doubt in. And now you're just like, Oh yeah, but it might all be wrong, but who cares? It's still, <laughs> yeah, it's in, and I think in the broader context, it is like at the very end, he's just sort of like, look, even if you don't believe me, we're good for the empire. We're good for society. Leave us alone. Like, yeah, almost like, even if you don't believe everything I just said, yeah. And for our listeners' sake, just so you guys know what the Pascal's wager is, it's an argument that Pascal uses, which basically says that if you assess the, if you assess assess uh, risk and reward when it comes to choosing Christianity or not, he says it makes sense to be a Christian because if you're right, you gain heaven, and if you're wrong, you just cease to exist. But if you're wrong, you go to hell, and if you're right, you cease to exist. So he says. If you do just perform like cost benefit analysis, it doesn't hold up. Now, the problem with it, well, there are lots of problems actually with that argument, yeah. not the least of which is he assumes that this is a binary question. That is, that there are only two options, which that's not true. There are lots of options out there, some of which 
threaten Christians in return for hell. But nonetheless, that's the argument uh, that Caleb was referencing there. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tom. I'll let you guys go. Thanks, Trevor. All right. Great yeah. to see you guys. Nice Caleb, good to guys. see you again. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon. It's always great to have you. Thank you. Sweet. Cool. cool. Later, dude. See you guys. I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of A History of Christian Theology. We will be back next week with another work from Tertullian, where we will also discuss the nature of the early heresy known as Montanism and what that means for Tertullian's theology as he was a later convert to this sect. Thanks for listening.